Brethren, since I have been here, I have recommended to a number of you that you secure, if you don't already have one, a copy of John Fox's book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. In fact, just out of curiosity, who, who here owns that and has read portions of it or here and there? Okay, all right. I usually don't give book recommendations from the pulpit that frequently, but Fox's Book of Martyrs is a remarkable historical work. And I would call it a, a rather bittersweet work because it shows us how it is that brethren throughout history have been persecuted, abused by this world, tortured and even killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. I say it's bittersweet because it's difficult to read and to consume and, be, and absorb this constant revelation and disclosure of all of the abuse that brethren have endured throughout history. That's the bitter part, to see the horrific things that human beings can do to one another is stunning. The sweet part of it is to see the faithfulness of God's children, whereby they retain their faith and devotion to Christ even to the end. And I want to share, I want to begin with one story that takes place as recorded by John Fox during the 10th persecution that took place under the Emperor Diocletian. Fox tells a story of a Christian by the name of Victor, who spent much time, he says, visiting the sick and weak and gave considerable money to the poor. Being so well known as a charitable Christian, he soon came to the attention of the emperor and was arrested in order to be bound and dragged through the streets, all the while being beaten and stoned by pagans along the way. His steadfastness was condemned as stubbornness, and he was ordered to be stretched on the rack and tortured while it was being done. Victor endured the or ordeal with great courage and when his tormentors grew tired of their work, they put him into a cell. There he preached Christ to his jailers, and three of them, Alexander, Longinus, and Felicia, received Christ. When news of this reached the emperor, he ordered the three jailers to, be, to the executioner's block where they were beheaded. Victor was remanded, uh, was remanded to the rack and beaten with clubs and then returned to prison. The third time he was examined, a pagan altar with an idol on it was brought in and he was given incense and ordered to offer it to the idol. Incensed at this, Victor drove his foot against the altar and overturned it. This so enraged the emperor who was there that he ordered Victor's foot to be cut off. He was then thrown into a grain mill and crushed beneath the millstones. How sad to see the brutality of humanity. How encouraging to see the faithfulness of a child of God, even to the bitter end. 
Brethren, there are many promises in Scripture that we have. Promises upon which our souls hang. Promises in the Old Testament that speak of the first advent of Christ, and we rejoice in the fact that our faithful God fulfilled those promises and gave us the Savior. And we... And we have such precious promises concerning his second advent. And again, our souls do hang on the fulfillment of those promises where the Lord himself has promised to bring his people home. But there is a very sobering promise in scripture that I don't know that we often claim with the same degree of eagerness. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 says this, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That too is a promise. It's a hard one to embrace and receive at times, but at the end of the day, we have to understand that like Victor, if we're going to stand for Christ, that means we're going to face opposition. Brethren, there are countless ways in which Satan seeks to take away our focus from this priority of serving Christ above all. And this is one of the reasons why I believe that the small book of Philemon gives us such a remarkable set of lessons. Because it gives us a quick but powerful dose of what our priorities really need to be. Again, there are so many ways in which we can be distracted from our true priorities in life. But brethren, we need to resist those distractions at all costs. As I said recently, one of the great lessons that we will learn through this small epistle is the power of the gospel. And again, I know and understand that you believe in the power of the gospel. But I believe that the reminders that we will receive through this epistle will be extremely important for us. The other lesson that we're going to learn is, is that, again, is that God is not a respecter of persons. We live in a world and in a society that teaches us to, to distinguish between the members of the human race based upon superficial distinctions. But we must resist that for the sake of the gospel. We'll also consider the fact in this epistle, the fact that God has given us a common salvation. The redemption that you have, the forgiveness of sin that you have, I have too. And you don't have more of it than me, and I don't have more of it than you. We all share a common redemption and salvation. And this epistle also helps us to think about our individual responsibility to serve Christ, our King, and to do so with willing and joyful hearts. And finally, this epistle helps us to remember that no matter what happens in our lives, we have but one priority, and that is to glorify the one who redeemed us. Yes, all these lessons and more are in this tiny epistle. Now, brethren, I'd like to read through the entirety of the epistle. Can't do that with every book uh, when you're starting a series. If I started a series on uh, the book of Romans, I don't think I'd read through the whole book before preaching it. 
but I can get away with that here with the book of Philemon. So let me go ahead and read the entirety of the epistle, and then I want us to consider what we're going to be reviewing here this morning. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what, that which is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything that your goodness should, should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was, for this reason, parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, lest I should mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do more, even more, than what I say. And at the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I shall be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. My brethren, as we're beginning this epistle, we're going to go through some of the introductory elements of this epistle. 
We're going to talk about the authorship of this epistle, the recipients of it, and the context in which it was written. And we're also going to talk about the main point of this epistle. This is really key. You know, in seminary, they teach you to find the heart of a sentence. Because the heart of the sentence is governed by the, the primary verb of any sentence. We all know this, or I think we know this. And this is the thing that we really are going to consider here this morning as we think of the actual point of the letter. We're going to be looking at the very appeal that Paul makes to Philemon. Because at the end of the day, with all the things that are said, there is a very central and important appeal that Paul gives to Philemon. And so I want to make sure that we understand what that is before we delve further into the text as we go through this series. And I'm not sure exactly how long we'll take. It might be two months, maybe two and a half or three at the most. Again, it's a very short epistle. But let's first of all think about the, the author, the date, the recipients of this epistle. Obviously this is, and I think it's really not disputed at all, this is a, an epistle written by Paul the recipient, the pr principal recipient is Philemon. Paul is in prison and he's writing from Rome. And this is considered to be one of the prison epistles. The others being uh, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Although Philemon does bear this distinction, whereas those other epistles, and really all the other epistles that Paul writes, they're more pedagogical in nature. This one is more of a personal appeal to an individual unlike the others. The date of this, the writing of this epistle is likely 61 AD. And this is important to remember because if we think about what that means, 61 AD, that means that Nero has been emperor for seven years by now. And in just three more years, Nero will institute the first official persecution against Christians. In another five years from the writing of this epistle, Paul will be arrested and will be beheaded by the order of Nero. So Paul, who calls himself aged, is really at the end of his life, or coming to the end of his life. As for the recipients of this epistle, it's stipulated very clearly. It is written to Philemon, whom he calls our beloved brother and fellow worker, and I'll say something about Philemon in a moment. It's also written to Aphia, who is considered most, most often considered to be the wife, uh, most likely, of Philemon. Archippus is usually considered to be the son of both Philemon and Archippus. As for Philemon, we learn a, quite a bit about Philemon, and we learn quite a bit about the nature of his own life and conduct. The first thing we need to think about is when we talk about Philemon, it's likely the case that Philemon was converted during Paul's ministry and say while he was in Ephesus. Remember, Paul was in Ephesus for about three years, and so that would have been the place in which he would have been within proximity of Colossae and would, would have likely ministered to Philemon among other individuals. J.B. Lightfoot says it this way, Philemon has been con had been converted by St. Paul himself. At what time or under what circumstances he received his first lessons in the gospel, we do not know. But the apostle's long residence at Ephesus naturally suggests 
suggests itself as the period when he was most likely to have become acquainted with a citizen of Colossae. Philemon, by virtue of the fact that he had a church in his home, he had a fellowship in his home, was likely a very wealthy individual and likely had a house large enough to accommodate a small assembly. And so this really helps us to think about the generosity of Philemon. For him to open up his house and to facilitate a fellowship really speaks to that generosity. It speaks to the very generosity that we see in the early church at, at Jerusalem. Remember where they began selling their property and possessions and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And all of that is from a genuine giving spirit and heart. You know, we often say that communism doesn't work. Why? Because it's all compulsory. If you force people to give to others, that's, uh, that's not the same thing as this. This is not compulsory. This is a giving that is rooted in a desire to serve Christ and a desire to express love to others. But look at what Paul says about Philemon. He says some remarkable things about his character and his love. In verse 4 he says, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your, of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Twice Paul speaks of the love that is in the heart and bosom of Philemon. Brethren, notice the order even that he gives this description of Philemon. He says, I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. He loves the Lord and he loves the Lord's people. Here we have a description, really a summary of the foremost commandment, loving God and loving neighbor. And Paul is basically saying, Philemon, you are this man. You're a man who does, in fact, follow the foremost commandment. And God is first. And the people of God are within the view of your love. It's interesting to note His mention of love is so important, and it's going to factor in very heavily in terms of our understanding of what Paul is going to say to Philemon. He's writing to Philemon, and he speaks with such encouragement concerning the love that is in Philemon. And then he says in verse 9, appealing to this fundamental reality of love, he says, Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. The thing that we have to understand is, is that the concept of love is central in all of this epistle. Everything that is written in this epistle is rooted in this concept of love. Paul could have commanded Philemon to do that which was right, but he wanted Philemon to act 
on love from a, a willing heart and a desire to serve Christ. There's a sense in which this epistle, therefore, is not like the other epistles that Paul writes. So many of the other epistles are rooted in the idea of a pedagogy and theology and so forth. But in this particular epistle, we see the practical nature of Paul's theology. And he's basically taking his theology and putting it into practice when he appeals to, to Philemon. Now let's move to the second observation concerning the author of this epistle, who is the Apostle Paul. Notice what Paul says of himself in the first verse. He says, Paul, a desmios, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. A prisoner of whom? Rome? Prisoner of Nero? No. It is so striking that he does not identify himself with human agency, but he identifies himself with the Lord's sovereignty, and he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. Brethren, only six times does Paul speak of himself in this way. Only six times. He does it twice in Ephesians. He does it once in his epistle to Timothy, 2 Timothy, but three times he refers to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ in this small epistle. Brethren, when you think of this, this is a very important concept. The fact that he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus helps us to understand Paul's understanding of the sovereignty of the Lord. Why in the world is he in prison? You know, there's a very, very rich and deep beauty to this expression that he gives that he's, when he says that he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. A man who says that is a man who clearly understands God's absolute sovereignty over his life. Only an individual who comprehends this, who speaks this way, truly understands the sovereignty of God. When Peter was preaching in Jerusalem, speaking of Christ in his crucifixion, remember what he said regarding the Savior's crucifixion. He said, this man, speaking of Christ, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Yes, there were the instruments of the human agents who did this, but ultimately it was the result of God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. By the way, that's how everything works in God's divine providence. You have human agency and instrumentality, but it is God who is ultimately sovereign over everything. Brethren, i got to confess to you, I don't know how many times I've considered this and meditated on this, but this is the daily battle of my own life to remember that God is in charge of everything, every little detail of my life. And like Matthew chapter 6, I'm so quick to be anxious for the worries of this life. But we have to remember the lesson that is implicit in this statement. When Paul calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ, he's helping Philemon and all of us to remember that we are in God's hands no matter what happens in our lives. And by the way, 
it is a dangerous thing for us to go through trials like Paul here who is in prison, he's going through a trial. If we went through a trial like this, we'd have to ask the question, where are we gonna look? Are we gonna look inside ourselves and look at our pain and look at our circumstances and, and then start acting and speaking on the result of the meditation in our hearts on ourselves? Or are we gonna look towards heaven, towards the almighty God and understand, you know what, I'm exactly where I need to be according to the plan and will of God. If we do the former rather than the latter, we're going to make everything a mess. Navel-gazing is one of the greatest dangers to any human being. I'm in a bad situation. I'm, I'm in circumstances that I don't like, and I'm going to start gazing at my navel, considering my own circumstances, groveling, complaining, thinking of my own pain. If that's the way we're going to go, it's a slow descent into greater sin. But brethren, if we look towards heaven and we remember that we are exactly where we are by the plan of God, then we're able to minister to others. Remember Joseph, who encountered his brothers who sold him into slavery. Can you imagine if Joseph resorted to his own pain and anger and anguish over what his brothers did? I mean, what they did to him was unconscionable. Had he been a man who just looked at himself in his own trials and, and just complained, and he, he could have just let him have it. But looking towards heaven, he was able to instruct them and help them where he says, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good. Brethren, I believe that what we have here in this epistle is a powerful lesson. Paul was able to minister to Philemon, make his appeal to Philemon, and even offer the pedagogy that was necessary in order to make that appeal. All of this he was able to do and be an effective minister even though he was in jail because instead of looking at himself and his circumstances, he was looking to Christ. And I submit to you that this is exactly what we must do. And even Paul, when he referred to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ in 2 Timothy 1.8, he was able to minister to Timothy there from prison where he said, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Only when we are focused on Christ in the midst of a trial can we be a benefit to others. But the moment we look at ourselves, our own sorrow, our own pain, our own sense of persecution from others, that's a dead end every time. You know, when I think of the Apostle Paul and I think of the manner in which he was called to the ministry, it's really stunning to think about the manner in which he was launched into his ministry. Do you remember how the Lord described what he was going to be doing? At least in terms of the language that was first given to Ananias and then was later repeated to Paul. But when you read Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, the Lord speaking to Ananias says of Paul, he says, go, go to Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, 
to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's quite an ordination, isn't it? You're going to go, you're going to serve me, and you know what's going to happen? You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer for my name's sake. What a sobering thing this is. But brethren, think about what Paul did go through. And think about this language of him being a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Again, throughout his ministry, he comprehended that everything that he was going through was, in fact, for the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you go through his missionary journeys and you follow him along, for example, in his first missionary journey, when he's in Lystra, he with Barnabas, remember, uh, they, they were ministering to the people there, and a man who was lame from birth was healed. And when the multitude saw, saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Laconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And so Paul and Barnabas began preaching the gospel they had difficulty restraining the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. And the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. You know, every time I read those words, I, I have to stop and think about Paul being beaten and abused so bad they thought he was dead. The next day, Paul and Barnabas, instead of going on vacation, they went to Derbe, preached the gospel, many believed, and they returned to the city in which Paul was nearly stoned to death. And they, what did they do? They strengthened the disciples. This is evidence of a man who is looking to heaven rather than to his own injuries, his bruises, and his pain. And it says that the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is our calling. Everyone who seeks to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, he says to Timothy. In the second missionary journey, when in Philippi, remember, after Paul cast out a demon from a slave girl, Paul and Silas were dragged into the marketplace before the authorities. And in Acts chapter 16, we read that the crowd arose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison, and fasten their feet in the socks. Inner prison, this is an important detail. Uh, they didn't have a, a window with a view. They're inside of the, the, the darkest, smelliest part of the prison now. And I ask you a question, what would you do? Again, you only have two options. Look at yourself and your pain and your affliction, or you look to heaven, and you say to yourself, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Well, you know what they did. They looked to heaven. And they started praying and singing 
in the jail. Such that the Philippian jailer, hearing them, knew that when the jail started to fall apart, he knew exactly who to go to and ask the question, what shall I do to be saved? Brethren, if Paul and Silas had looked to themselves and their own pain and their own sorrow, and if they were groveling and complaining about all this, none of this ministry would have taken place. And it's fascinating just following Paul again and again and again. In Thessalonica, there was a group of, je of, of jealous Jews who took some wicked men and formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And then they went to Berea and then they went to Athens. And, and look, look, Paul was not a superhuman or a superhero. He was a human being. He struggled with fear. And he struggled with it so much so that the Lord Jesus Christ, in a vision in, in the night, said this to him, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. You keep looking to me. And stop fearing. You know what that tells us? That means he was struggling with fear. Such that the Lord had to say, stop it. Stop it. Look to me. You're in my hands. And I'm going to carry you. Then in the third missionary journey, while in Ephesus, remember Paul preached in the synagogue, and when he was faced with Jewish opposition, he continued teaching in the school of Tyrannus for two years to both Jews and Greeks. And it says in Acts chapter 19 that many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Paul's ministry was disruptive. You know, if you're going to proclaim the gospel in this world, it is disruptive. It is divisive. The gospel busts the idols of men. And that's why it's risky business to proclaim Christ in this lost and fallen world, which is at enmity against the Lord. But we have no other options. If we're the children of God, this is our privilege. And remember the controversy. The city was in an uproar. Two hours, they shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine being in the middle of that? Two hours. Paul departed from there to Jerusalem, knowing by the prophecy of Agabus that he would be arrested and imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Jesus said, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Why is he in prison? Is he in prison because of Nero and Roman authorities? Yeah, they were instruments, but ultimately he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And he is there for a reason. And he's able to minister even from prison to a man named Philemon. I 
I mention all this because Philemon was an eyewitness to some of these things. He likely, by virtue of the fact that Paul ministered the gospel to Philemon, he would have known about these events. He knows his brother in Christ, Paul. He knows that he bears the brand marks of Jesus. And he knows that this is a man who just doesn't have words. But his life is rooted and grounded in the very deep conviction that he possessed. Paul was a man of deep convic conviction who understood that it is not enough to speak of Christ's preeminence with your lips. We must be ready and willing to face the consequences for such a message in this Christ-hating world. And this brings us to the main point of the letter. Here's Paul in prison, just a handful of years away from his own death, his own execution. He makes a very strong appeal to Philemon concerning Philemon's runaway slave, Onesimus. Now I'm going to say a lot more about Onesimus, and I'm going to say a lot more about slavery, and I'm going to say a lot more about what it means if a slave runs away and how they handled that and what that meant concerning the runaway slave, because those are all important details. But I want us to consider how it is that Paul presents this appeal. If you go to verse 7, again he says, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. There he repeats that title again. What's the appeal? What's the heart of, the se of this long sentence? Verse 17. Now, I'm not going to preach this verse before we get to it, but I'm going to give you a preview of what is central to this epistle. In verse 17, Paul says this, If then you regard me a partner... Accept him, Onesimus, as you would me. That is a tiny statement. You say, well, why is this such a big deal? I mean, it is a big deal. It's actually massive. Especially when you unpack the detail of what is in that very small sentence. Paul issues this as a conditional. His appeal is based upon a condition. The condition is this. Philemon, if you then count me as a partner, as a partner in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the ministry of the gospel, then I want you to do this. I want you to receive Onesimus, who, yes, fled from you. He's a runaway slave, but mark this. He's been ministering to me for the gospel. I want you to do this. I want you to proslabu, 
proslabu, receive him. And then he says, as me, or as myself. That's how the ASV translates it. When you look at the verse and the details of the language, Paul is basically saying, I want you to receive him like it was me myself. It was like as if I was the one that you're receiving. Treat him like you would treat me. Make no difference. Make no distinction. Why is this so powerful? Why is this so amazing when you think about what is being said here in the small verse? Well, because a slave was really not even considered to be a human being in, in the culture, in society. John Anthony Crook, in his book, Law and Life of Rome, says this, What is a slave? Is it a thing or is he a person? In Roman society and law, this ambivalence is everywhere. The slave is a raise, a, a manicipium, a thing, chattel, or raise mortals or mortal objects. It's a thing that walks around. It talks, it breathes, but it's really not human. It's disgusting. But that was the culture. That was the idea. That was the attitude that people had regarding slaves. And brethren, the body of Christ, the church, is not to imitate the world. No human being is a mere thing. You see, the power of this verse, verse 17, consists in this idea of Paul saying, I get it, the world looks at him as a piece of property, but when you receive him back, receive him as if it were me. A man that you love, that you know, that I know that you cherish in Christ. Make no distinction. Receive him as me. For Philemon to treat Onesimus as the, the Apostle Paul meant that not only was the legal standard of chattel slavery completely obliterated, but Onesimus would be an elevated as an invaluable co-labor for the gospel and as a friend in Christ. This is why I say that Paul really practiced what he preached. In his epistle to the Colossians, he says this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. He says, he says, put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Paul believed this and he practiced it. And it is this theology that he is now calling upon Philemon to put into practice. Do not treat Onesimus like he's a piece of property. You treat him as you would treat me and make no distinction in this. Brethren, we are seeing the power of the gospel as it stands against the tide 
of worldly wisdom, the idolatry that exists in this world, which makes distinctions between men and women, human beings, whatever their station in life, we create distinctions within society that are utterly ungodly many times. J.B. Lightfoot makes a very important point. I want to read this to you. Because what we learn in the book of Philemon is crucial. And it's stunning when you think about the fact that I recently mentioned R.L. Dabney. And I mentioned the fact that he actually tried to use the Bible to justify the chattel slavery of the transatlantic slave trade. Despicable. Because people were being treated like chattel, like mere property being sold here and there. But Lightfoot tells us and reminds us of the importance of what lessons we are gleaning from Philemon. He says, when the gospel taught that God had made all men and women upon earth of one family, that all alike were his sons and his daughters, that whatever conventional distinctions human society might set up, the supreme king of heaven refused to acknowledge any that the slave, not, notwithstanding his slavery, was Christ's freedman, and the free, notwithstanding his liberty, was Christ's slave. When the church carried out this principle by admitting the slave at her highest privileges, inviting him to kneel side by side with his master at the same holy table, when in short, the apostolic precept that in Christ Jesus is neither bond nor free, was not only recognized but acted upon, then slavery was doomed. Henceforth, it was only a question of time. Brethren, people are not property. They're not to be abused and used for your own personal purposes, ever. I know you know that. But how often it is the case that we can make distinctions between people and demote them in our mindset and attitude based upon those distinctions. This is why I said not long ago when I was talking about the dangers of the social justice movement that the very errors that were promoted by men like R.L. Dabney whereby people were supposed to imagine that the transatlantic slave trade and chattel slavery was somehow justified by means of the scriptures. And no, the Bible refutes this notion and says we're talking about human beings. And therefore, if we truly understand and apply the lessons of scripture, all that nonsense is destroyed. And we are left with the great privilege of treating one another as equal members of the single race called the human race, who all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all therefore need the same Redeemer equally. And there is no distinction. Brethren, this is a powerful epistle. And it has many lessons for us. And I look forward to delving further into this epistle. But we begin with this introduction and are reminded of the fact that we must be all about the gospel. Satan is constantly seeking ways 
to distract us from the priority of the gospel, but we must resist it and not look to our own affliction and our own circumstances, but look to the king of heaven and remember we are always in his hands if we're his children. 